This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour today. I'm Joel Hilliker. Illegal immigration into America since Joe Biden took office has been astronomical, some five million people in a year and a half. For years, we've heard there were about 11 million illegal immigrants in America, but that number is surely far higher and it's swelling rapidly under a government that is actively encouraging it. We'll hear a report from Trumpet writer Andrew Miller about why the White House is doing this and how it parallels a situation in the ancient Roman Republic that completely altered the character and the demographics of that people and led to tyranny. Then we'll travel to Europe, which is in the midst of historic drought. We'll talk with trumpet writer Josue Michels about a variety of effects this drought is having, economic, political, and social, and how this could accelerate certain biblical prophecies about Europe. Today marks 25 years since the death of Princess Diana. We'll hear a report from trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau about her legacy and how her influence changed the British royal family even to this day. And finally, we'll talk about how what you're eating might actually impair your ability to focus. Let's start now by looking at the truly serious threat posed to America by illegal immigration in this report from Andrew Miller. Joe Biden is creating the worst migrant crisis in United States history. Since Biden took office 18 months ago, nearly 5 million illegal aliens have crossed the United States border. Yet radical Democrats still refuse to increase border security. Instead, they are encouraging more aliens to come by rescinding Title 42 a Donald Trump-era public health measure allowing the federal government to deport illegal aliens from countries with potent infectious diseases such as COVID-19. According to Dan Stein, the president of the Federation for American Immigration Reform, roughly the equivalent of the entire population of Ireland has illegally entered the United States in the 18 months since President Biden has been in office, with many being released into American communities. In that time, the Biden administration has blamed an unprecedented surge of illegal immigration on all sorts of external factors except their own sabotage of our nation's immigration laws. The endless flow of illegal aliens and the incursion of illegal narcotics pouring across our border will not end until the administration demonstrates a willingness to enforce our laws. Now, one Yale University study has estimated that there are already between 16 million and 29 million illegal aliens in the United States. And it looks like the Biden administration wants millions more. Some analysts think demographic shifts caused by unlawful immigration could turn Texas into a democratic stronghold by the 2024 presidential election. That would mean no Republican would ever win a future presidential election. Democrats would be able to transform the U.S. into a socialist state simply by nixing voter ID laws that require people to prove they are citizens before voting. Trevor Loudon told the Epoch Times that this is an orchestrated communist assault on America to destroy America's borders, to create confusion in America, to overwhelm the system politically. You can see what 15, 16, 20, 25 million new Democratic voters are going to do to this country. You'll lose Texas, you'll lose Florida, you'll lose Georgia, Arizona, and North Carolina. There will never be ever another Republican or conservative president in our lifetimes. You will have a one-party state in America. That's the plan. That is why they are doing this. Now, the radical Obama-Biden administration is trying to get Americans to accept an authoritarian government by importing millions of illegal aliens used to living under authoritarian rule in their home countries. This should concern anyone who believes in Republican principles like the rule of law, separation of powers, equal protection, and civil liberties. It is a tried and true strategy that past authoritarians have used to fundamentally transform nations. In some ways, the Roman Republic founded by Lucius Junius Brutus 
and Lucius Tarquinius Collatinus in 509 BC was similar to the American Republic founded by George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison in 1776. Both republics began with the overthrow of a monarch. Both republicans were built on strong, stable families in which the father was the chief authority. Both republics believed that legislative, executive, and judicial power should be separate. And both republics were ultimately destroyed by an influx of aliens who did not believe in the political values espoused by their new country's founding fathers. Today, some historians debate the historicity of Lucius Junius Brutus and Lucius Tarquinus Collatinus, but the fact that the early Roman Republic was trenchantly against monarchs is undeniable. The ancient Assyrians and Babylonians believed their kings were vicars of their principal deities, and the ancient Egyptians went further thinking their pharaohs were deities themselves. But Greece and Rome were different. The Greek and Latin tribes that dominated the Italian peninsula in the 5th century BC believed in government by the consent of the governed. They took great pains to ensure that all citizens could vote, yet things began to change after the last king of Pergamum's royal line died in 133 BC without an error and bequeathed his kingdom to the rising Roman Republic. After Rome annexed Asia Minor, Latin senators started buying Anatolian slaves and hiring Anatolian servants to work their vast crop plantations. These foreign workers pushed native Latin farmers off their land and into the provinces, contributing to a demographic shift in the Italian peninsula. This shift became more pronounced after General Pompey the Great conquered what remained of the Seleucid Empire. So many Arameans, Armenians, Chaldeans, Edomites, Jews, Phoenicians, Samaritans, and Syrians relocated to the Italian peninsula that the Latins became a minority in their own country. In fact, a change of ethnicity occurred in Italy between the 3rd century BC and the 3rd century AD. By the time Emperor Aurelian made the Syrian sun god Sol Invictus an official Roman deity, Rome was no longer an Indo-European society. Chaldean, Phoenician, and Syrian peoples had largely replaced the original Latins and transformed Italy into a Semitic country. This often overlooked fact explains why the temperament of the early Romans was so different from the Italians of Constantine's time. Professor Tenney Frank of John Hopkins University wrote, This orientalization of Rome's populace has a more important bearing than is usually accorded it upon the larger question of why the spirit and acts of imperial Rome are totally different from those of the Republic. There was a complete change of temperament. There is today a healthy activity in the study of the economic factors that contributed to Rome's decline. But what lay behind and constantly reacted upon such causes of Rome's disintegration was, after all, to a considerable extent, the fact that the people who built Rome had given way to a different race. Now, the Latins were a fiercely independent people whom the Jews associated with Japheth's grandson, Kittim. After these Latins banished King Tarquin the Proud, they vowed never to be ruled by kings again. Yet five centuries later, they began worshiping their Caesars like the Babylonians worshiped their kings. Many people puzzle over this dramatic change, yet the answer to this change in intellectual outlook and spiritual ethos is obvious. The Romans worshiped their rulers like the Babylonians after mass immigration transformed them into literal Babylonians. For this reason, many of the ancient Caesars undoubtedly encouraged Babylonian immigration into Rome. Suppose you want to transform a republic fundamentally. There are a few better ways to do this than encouraging mass immigration from a region of the world where people think the way you want your people to think. The Roman Caesars understood this, and the radical left understands this. Barack Obama made an executive decree to grant amnesty to 4.7 million illegal aliens in 2014, and Biden is allowing millions of new illegal aliens into the country today. 
American leaders are not creating a migrant crisis to teach Latin Americans about Republican principles. They're creating a migrant crisis to force conservative Americans to accept socialist principles. Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry makes this point in his new and greatly expanded book, America Under Attack. He says, so many of the evils plaguing America today trace back to the mid-1980s. Today, many people recognize the immense threat posed by illegal immigration and the fact that radical leftists are actively fighting to change the country by it. This demographic transformation of the country's population has been underway for more than a generation. It fa in fact, it began with the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act, which granted amnesty to millions of illegal immigrants and liberalized America's immigration laws. The migrant crisis on America's southern border is an attempt by radical communists to transform America into a socialist nation ruled over by an American Caesar. Yet despite this Caesar's best attempts to transform America, Bible prophecy shows that he will only end up weakening America to the point where it can be conquered by modern-day Chaldean invaders. The only way to avoid this sobering fate is for Americans to repent of the sins that allowed a cabal of radicals to hijack their nation and to return to the biblical principles that make nations great. Thank you very much, Andrew. That is a fascinating historical uh, account that uh, that we have there. The, the contrast between the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire and this uh, this argument that a great deal of the change was because of the changing demographics and the composition of the people because of unchecked immigration. Uh, you look at what the Biden administration, what the Obama administration does, and the, the, the radical leftists in America that are encouraging this kind of immigration. And there's no doubt that they are interested in changing the demographics of the country, of the vote. Uh, they, they want to get voters for the Democratic Party. Um, and, you know, they're even shipping these people around the country specifically to places where they're able to shore up Democratic, uh, the Democratic electorate in electorally sensitive parts of the country, that they want to, to uh, increase Democrats' chances of winning elections in specific targeted areas. You also hear reports of uh, some of these immigrants who are actually quite conservative. Maybe they're coming from parts of the world where they've seen what socialism does. They've seen how damaging communist ideals are, and they're actually interested in what America has to offer that's unique from that. Uh, and you see like how much support, say, among Hispanic voters that Donald Trump has uh, has accrued. It's the people who are making these decisions and importing these immigrants. I think it's fair to say that they are unleashing forces that really they cannot control. Uh, they 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 cannot keep tabs on exactly where this is going to lead. And there are things that are going to happen beyond their control. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's a it's a complicated issue that's hard to predict. So far, I, I think the the data available to us shows that uh, if if uh, these radicals are doing what Trevor Loudon and others have accused them of, and are deliberately encouraging illegal immigration in order to make uh, America a more socialist country, that is strat that strategy is working. Um, though maybe not as efficiently as as they'd like. Uh, as you mentioned, it's like Cuba is kind of an outlier in that like people who've actually lived under Fidel Castro, uh, as, if they can ever escape the island and get here, they're some of the staunchest conservatives out there. Uh, that's actually one of the main reasons they say that Trump is so popular in, uh, in Florida is because uh, Florida used to be, if you remember, the Bush-Gore election was kind of a toss-up between Republicans and Democrats. Now Florida is a bit more of a conservative state due to Cuban immigration. Uh, but overall, overall, the Hispanic um, community votes about 60 to 70 percent liberal. 
Uh, and so now I think the, uh, because they're coming from nations like Guatemala and Honduras that have socialist governments, I think some of the, uh, some Democrats are hoping that they'd vote more like 80 or 90% liberal, but then some of them do actually become more conservative after coming here. But it's still, it's not a 50-50 divide. It's about two-thirds. They're playing the odds here. It's about two-thirds liberal. So, I mean, it's undeniable that, like, the more you see some of these migrant caravans actually flying vote Biden flags. So uh, if five million immigrants cross the border, if you could do like Barack Obama did in 2014 and just grant that many people amnesty, you could could probably count on about two-thirds of them. Uh, casting a ballot for the for the Democratic Party, and ironically, um, voting for principles that are going to make America more like the nations they're trying to get away from. Yeah, a very very dangerous game to be playing. We thank you for that. We've been talking with trumpet writer Andrew Miller about America's immigration crisis and parallels with the ancient Roman Republic. How immigration changed that republic. Permanently, He's written an article, Retracing Rome's Steps Toward Tyranny. You can find that on thetrumpet.com. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thanks for having me. is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Europe is suffering from a historic drought that is having a range of economic, political, and social effects. To talk about this, we have here in the studio Trumpet writer Josue Michels. Hello, Josue. Hello, Mr. So tell us how severe, how far-reaching the drought is uh, affecting Europe right now. Yes, it's a quite historic drought Current measurements say it's probably the worst drought in 500 years. It's particularly bad in Central Europe. It has caused wildfires. It has caused rivers to dry up. It has caused the harvest to be decreased. But it has also caused many other problems, as we will talk about later. So it's a really big trouble for the whole continent of Europe during a time where there's already big economic trouble. We had the lockdowns from the coronavirus. And people were coming out of that and thought, now we go into the recovery from those lockdowns. But now, then we had a war in Ukraine where Russia invaded. And now there's another war threatening in Taiwan. On top of that, we have those droughts that are really devastating the harvest and the economy even further. So uh, drought is something that in in a lot of cases we've kind of come to live with it's not that uncommon europe has experienced droughts before what makes this particularly concerning yes that's right we have been seeing droughts throughout centuries and we are living today in a time where we have global trade supplies we have supermarkets we are stocked with food we have an abundance in the western world but this came at a time where we have seen actually an increase in famine and starvation because the Western nations have been hit with the coronavirus and they can't help out in Africa and other countries around the world anymore. So that comes at a particular bad time. Furthermore, we have the drought hit earlier than usual. The Rhine River and other rivers are dried up where they usually would be dried up in a drought in the coming months. So actually the most dry months are yet ahead of Europe, which could make the crisis even far worse. And we mentioned before that there's a war in Ukraine where Russia invaded. And Ukraine has been the seventh largest wheat producer and a large exporter. But they can't do that anymore the way they used to. On top of that, you have Russia, who is the largest gas exporter in Europe, and around the world, and they don't ship their gas anymore the way they used to. They don't transport it through the pipelines anymore. So you have an energy crisis, and actually the drought has an impact on the energy sector as well. You have energy run through the rivers systems, and you also have it used as cooling down power plants, and you also have it used to transport coal over those rivers. So it's not just that you have decreased 
a decreased harvest, it's also a decrease in the energy sector and in the transport of goods. So it has a huge economic impact. So all those crises combined really show how serious the crisis is. Uh, you, you, uh, maybe you could just elaborate a little bit more on the on the water transport, the way that how much freight is is moved through these rivers that are actually drying up and making it impossible for uh, for ships to to move that freight. Yes, it takes something like forty trucks for one of those to replace one of those ships, and you have enormous gas prices right now. So the Rhine River, it has something like 80% of the water fried in Germany goes through the Rhine River and they can't, they can't use it the way they used to. The ships can't be loaded up because they would be getting stuck in the river. So they either don't do it at all or they decrease the amount they put on there and that's significantly less. So the destinations were supposed to get the goods too. They can't use them, which means it contributes to inflation. And we just had supply chain problems with right. the COVID-19 lockdowns. The economy has not recovered from that till this point. And this just adds on top of all of that. Uh, the economic problems that uh, that Europe has been in, as you said, it's it's already suffering in a lot of ways. The uh, the and the economy, of course, has uh, significant effects on the, the politics of Europe. Uh, do you have any any thoughts on just how much this is exacerbating these economic problems that are that are creating political issues within Europe? Yes, it remains to be seen how long this drought continues but prediction is that it will continue all the way into winter and in, even if it we have some more rain in the coming days it would take four weeks of rain to make up for that so the problems are there and their problems are there to stay and it puts a lot of pressure on the german government it puts a lot of pressure on many european governments at this point because in time of crisis the people really look to the politicians, they look to the leadership of their countries much more than common days. And that puts more pressure on those coalitions, on those political systems to deliver real solutions, especially when you come to winter and people don't have savings anymore because they got eaten up by inflation. And then all those crises come on them where they might be freezing in the winter they might be starving, especially the economic poor. The government doesn't have any handouts to give anymore. The government in France said, we have to stop. We can't put any more money into the economy to help the people out. So all those crises are coming on the people. And we have already seen those crises to topple leaders in mm. Europe and the German leaders in trouble. He might have to resign because of some other scandal that is involving tax fraud. We have elections in Italy coming up. The Austrian government is very unstable right now. The people are very unsatisfied. So it can lead to many crises which might re lead to re-elections. But the system right now hasn't produced any strong leaders. I'd like to, uh, to return to that um, that thread in uh, in in a little bit because th there definitely would could be a major political upheaval in the in the coming months in light of crises such as the one that we're seeing here. Just to return to what's happening in the rivers in uh, in Europe and particularly Germany, it's actually uh, these rivers drying up are bringing some of Europe's submerged history back to the surface. Maybe you can tell us about that. Yes, in recent weeks there have been two news stories that really caught my attention in that regard. One was German warships in the Donau River of Serbia, where they have found 20 German warships from the time of World War II. And anyone familiar with that history knows that Germany has committed one of the greatest war crimes. They have butchered many people in Serbia, and the people there remember it. But those images also remind the German people of the horrible crimes they have committed really not too long ago. 
And there's another phenomenon that came out out of those riverbeds, particularly in Germany. For many centuries, German people have used dried up rivers to leave messages for future generations. Those are called in German Hungersteine, which translate to hunger stones. And anytime a riverbed shows, anytime a river dries up, the people of Germany knew that means that we're going to starve very soon here. So they marked up stones sometimes with the year when those droughts happened or occurred. And sometimes they also left messages. One of those messages reads, when du mich siehst, dann weine, when you see me, weep. So that's a warning to future generations. If the river dries up to that state again, know that this means terrible problems are about to come on the German people. That's uh, quite a chilling warning from uh, from Germany's past. Uh, the people who are watching this crisis unfold, mainstream news media uh, politicians, uh, we hear almost invariably this is a, a warning sign of climate change. We at the Trumpet, we're always looking at this through the lens of biblical prophecy and, and biblical teaching. What does the Bible say about the cause of, of what's happening here in Europe? Yes, that's the that's why there have been droughts throughout centuries, but people today focus on climate change. But the Bible specifically says that God controls the weather. More specifically, he says that he would curse the people of Germany through weather disasters to get their attention and to focus on him. Specifically, name one with three to four highlights that God God himself would try up all the rivers. So as Mr. Gerald Flewey, trumpeter-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flewey explains in Nahum, a, prophecy, a modern prophecy for Germany, he speaks about this book being a warning for Germany today. So this book has been recorded and written down in the Old Testament, but it is a message for modern Germany. And there's a long passage in that book that only has a few chapters that talks about how God controls the weather and he uses the weather to get people's attention. And in that prophecy, he talks about floods and he talks about drying up rivers. Those are two specific things that prophecy mentions. And you might remember just last year, Germany has had historic floods where actually 150 people, more than 150 people died in the floods, which was a huge deal for a sophisticated nation to have floods killed so many people and made quite a lot of news. But this year it's the opposite. Those same rivers are dried up. Hmm. And that shows that this prophecy is directed at Germany today. It means that God tries to get Germany's attention. Well, uh, what is the the message of of prophecy for uh, for Germany? You mentioned the booklet by uh, Mr. Flurry on Nahum. That is a a book of the Bible that's specifically directed uh, at the Germans. Um, we look closely at Germany in particular. It's the the most powerful nation within Europe. There's a lot of biblical prophecy about what we can expect in Europe in the time ahead. When we see the kind of political upheaval that uh, that so many European nations, including Germany, are experiencing now, you mentioned uh, Italy, you mentioned Austria, uh, where can we see this uh, leading if we look at the, the clues that Bible prophecy gives us? Yes, the Bible has a very strong message for Germany, but it's also a very hopeful message for Germany. God essentially is warning the nation of Germany today that they will repeat the errors of history if they don't repent. So God is sending these curses on the German people that they focus on his message, the message that is sent out by our trumpeter and chief Mr. Gerald Flui, the message that's reaching Germany today that they can turn things around, that they don't have to repeat the faults of the past. But those same crises also opened the door for the German people to look to a strong leader 
like they have done in the past. Instead of trusting God, instead of repenting from their ways, they would trust a strong leader again. And numerous Bible prophecies, including the one in Nahum, show that they will once again believe that a savior, a human being, could save them from all these crises that God is actually sending on them for them to wake up. So the book of Nahum really shows what's going to happen to Germany. Right now, Germany is seen as a very peaceful nation because they don't have a strong leader that really leads them like leaders have done in the past, like Adolf Hitler has done, for example. So the German people are seeing the crisis coming on them. They have a history of warfare and they have lots of people in the government, in the industries that are cooperating on a level that has led to war before, but they don't have that strong leader that really pulls all the people behind those plans. But the coming crisis are prophesied to lead to that effect. If they don't heed God's message now, the people will trust a leader that will lead them into warfare that this world hasn't seen before. Some really uh, sobering prophecies that we need to keep in mind as we as we watch what's happening in Europe, as we see this drought causing uh, a lot of uh, upheaval, economic and social upheaval, even political upheaval. We'll certainly keep our eyes on on those uh, those key European nations that are in the middle of. Uh, political instability right now and see how this drought affects that. We've been talking with trumpet writer Josue Michels about this severe drought plaguing Europe. He's written an article, Historic Droughts Cause the Past's Warnings to Reemerge in Europe. You can uh, read that article on thetrumpet.com. And uh, we'll also link to Gerald Flurry's booklet, Nahum, A Prophecy for Germany, in the show notes for the program today. We appreciate your time, Josue. Thanks for having me again. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. How much did Princess Diana change the British royal family? On this 25th anniversary of her death, we'll learn the answer in this report from Abraham Blondeau. I remember the day Lady Diana died. I was six years old in 1997, playing inside our home in Saskatchewan when my parents saw the story on the news. I didn't know who Diana was, I knew who the Queen was, but I remember the shock and outpouring of emotion. Above all, I remember the pictures and videos of the mangled black Mercedes that was pulled out of the Pont de l'Alma tunnel in Paris. The entire front end of the car was smashed in, forming a U-shape when the car hit a supporting pillar at nearly 70 miles per hour. The engine was a mass of twisted and compacted steel, pushing into the seating area. All of the windows were smashed, the frame of the car was curved, and the roof was crumbling down. It took two hours for emergency crews to cut the passengers out of the wreckage. It was a horrific sight. Traveling with Diana that night was her boyfriend Dodi Fayed, son of the former owner of Harrods, the driver Henry Paul, and their bodyguard, Trevor Reese Jones. Fayed and Paul were pronounced dead at the scene. Diana was suffering from heavy internal bleeding and paramedics were able to revive her, but she later died from a heart attack during surgery early in the morning of August 31st. Jones was the only one to survive the crash. The investigation by the French police later revealed that the driver was under the influence of alcohol and that Diana was not wearing a seatbelt. The Mercedes was driving at high speeds in order to avoid the paparazzi, who were tailing the car on motorcycles. But at the time of her death, none of these details were known, and the world erupted into an emotional display of mourning that would prove to be a turning point for the British royal family. Lady Diana died 25 years ago today. To this day, she is remembered as a saint, an icon, and a heroine of a new age. 
Yet time has revealed Diana's true legacy as one not to be celebrated. Her life and death actually epitomizes several Bible prophecies that are being fulfilled right now across the English-speaking nations. More than 750 million people watched the wedding of Prince Charles and Diana Spencer on television. It was the most watched event in history at that time. The entire world was infatuated with the fairy tale romance and dazzling display of pomp and ceremony. The late Herbert W. Armstrong was in Britain at the time and wrote an article in the October-November 1981 Plain Truth magazine entitled Britain's Last Gasp of Joy and Splendor, in which he wrote, quote, No other nation on earth could put on so glorious and colorful an extravaganza. It was a spectacle unparalleled. The precise timing of everything, the professional dignity with which it was all executed, neared perfection, end quote. Yet despite the impressive and uplifting display, Mr. Armstrong did provide a warning. Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Mr. Gerald Flurry wrote in the Jeremiah and the Greatest Vision in the Bible booklet, quote, When she married, Princess Diana had the word obey removed from the wedding ceremony. She didn't want to obey her husband, and Charles shamefully agreed. God holds him more accountable. Herbert Armstrong prophesied that the royal marriage would fail because of that serious omission, end quote. That is exactly what happened. The hopes and dreams of the royal wedding tragically collapsed. Both Charles and Diana had scandalous affairs, and their public estrangement eventually led to a separation in 1992 and a divorce in August 1996. Princes William and Harry were only 14 and 11 years old when their family was torn apart. Only two years before Diana died, she said in a TV interview that she wanted to be the queen of people's hearts. The entire world was enraptured with the celebrity and glamorous image that Diana exuded. Diana became a royal rebel, breaking from norms and protocols, and embraced the New Age morality that was spreading throughout the Western world. Melanie Phillips wrote, Quote, a remarkable number of people saw in her a reflection of what they felt about their own neediness. Moreover, she was seen to have transmuted such suffering by her star power and her gestures of caring and compassion. So she was also invested with the sacred power of redemption. End quote. The carefully crafted mass media image of Diana as a victim of a bad marriage to Prince Charles made her a champion of feminism. When she died, especially in such a tragic manner, Britain and the world suffered from emotional hysteria. People laid flowers at the tunnel in Paris, at Buckingham and Kensington Palace, and demanded that Queen Elizabeth and Prince Charles partake of these emotional displays. Over the apparent lack of emotional empathy displayed by the royals, and because the Queen refused demands to fly the royal standard at half-mast, which is never done, even when a monarch dies. It was during this time that Prime Minister Tony Blair coined the phrase, the people's princess, and advised the Queen to make certain concessions. A year later, the Queen consented to having the Union Jack flown at half-mast at Buckingham Palace. It was a watershed moment that transformed the royal family. Royal historian Ed Owens said, quote, Diana's death is this whirlwind moment which requires the monarchy to reorientate its public image, to embrace a more modern, expressive kind of celebrity image as a way of appealing to audiences. End quote. Diana's sons have embraced this new form of monarchy and have continued embracing the social issues and progressive outlooks of their mother. Yet the bigger impact is how the example of Diana affected families around the world. In 1997, Mr. Flurry wrote, quote, Today the monarchy has been so battered, bruised, and beaten, they will never recover the dignity they once had. The walls of the palace have been riddled with scandal. Princess Diana's death could do even greater harm to the royal family than some of the events of her life, end quote. The tragic and shocking nature of her death allowed the media to deify her to the public. 
Her life, decisions, and legacy are beyond reproach, and the royal family are portrayed as the antagonists to the saintly crusade of Diana. This has actually been a deadly way in which to intensify the attack on the biblical family. The real legacy of Diana's life and example was the glamorizing of family breakdown. Phillips continues, quote, Her tragedy was to have made a disastrous marriage. She thus repeated the general pattern of catastrophic family breakdown, which may mark the children involved for the rest of their lives and distort the choices they themselves make, end quote. Yet the failed marriage and scandals of Prince Charles and Diana affect far more than William and Harry. It affects the stability of the realm and beyond. Mr. Fleury explains these disastrous consequences in the booklet Jeremiah and the Greatest Vision in the Bible. Quote, Prince Charles has publicly lived in an adulterous relationship with a married lady. Princess Diana went from one sordid adultery to another, while the whole world ogled and many followed her example. Since her death, she has widely been viewed as a saint. In truth, she was in the vanguard of a spirit that turned our families upside down. God thunders that these are nation-destroying problems. Princess Diana led an unparalleled rise of feminism and rebellion against God's law and the marriage covenant of God. It is blatant rebellion against God and it is wrecking the families in Israel. It leads to Sodom and Gomorrah. End quote. The royal family has led the way in promoting an anti-God lifestyle. This has only increased over the past 25 years as Diana's children continue the transformation of the royal family and other scandals involving Prince Andrew are exposed. This is partially the effect of generations of broken families and marital scandal in the House of Windsor and the profound change in morality that has gripped our nations. However, it is also the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Mr. Armstrong explained in the United States and Britain in Prophecy that the British royal family are descended from King David and that they are the fulfillment of promises God made in 2 Samuel 7 verse 16 and Jeremiah 33 verse 17. There is great hope and vision in that throne, but the royal family is also held more accountable for their actions. By deliberately promoting a lifestyle that destroys families, which is the foundation of any stable civilization, the royal family also brings more curses upon themselves and the entire nation. Despite the solemn nature of this history, there was a bright moment during the marriage of Charles and Diana. On May 14, 1983, both Prince Charles and Princess Diana met with Mr. Armstrong and spoke with him for some time privately. Here the royal family spoke with the man whom God used to restore the understanding of who they are, descendants of King David. They also spoke to the man who God used to restore how to have happy marriages and families from the Bible, which was prophesied in Malachi 4 verses 5 through 6. Yet instead of embracing that revelation, they chose to follow their own path. It was a unique and historic opportunity that was lost. Yet God has not abandoned his promise to David. 25 years after the tragic death of Diana, an inspiring change has occurred to David's throne that has made it shine brighter than ever before. It is actually linked to this tragic anniversary and offers hope for everyone and every family who has ever lived. To learn more about this inspiring truth, please read Mr. Fleury's book, The New Throne of David. It's time for today's Last Word. God wants us to be healthy. In 3 John 2, it says, Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health. God wants us working at our peak. Now, to work at your peak, you have to fuel your body properly. In a book 
called Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. It says, if you put shampoo into a car engine, you're not going to scratch your head when the thing conks out. And yet every day we put things into our bodies that are not intended for human fuel. That book, Stolen Focus, is about our short attention spans and our inability to focus. And it gives 12 causes for this crisis. And cause number nine is our deteriorating diets. The food we're eating isn't just expanding our waistlines and hurting our health. It's actually damaging our ability to pay attention. Your brain is a muscle. And if you deprive it of the nutrients it needs or you pump it full of pollutants, it's naturally going to affect its functioning and it's going to impair your ability to pay attention. Johan Hari describes three ways that what we eat is harming our focus. The first and probably most pervasive is that our diet causes regular energy spikes and energy crashes. The book says if you eat, say, a Twinkie, your blood sugar is going to go through the roof and then crashing back down again. That's going to affect how you can actually physically focus because if your energy is through the floor, you're not going to be able to give things your full attention. Now, even if you're not eating Twinkies, so much of what we eat causes the same kind of blood sugar spiking. Maybe not so severe, but this is very common. This book quotes one nutritionist, Dale Pinnock, saying, think about that typical pattern. People will eat maybe a bowl of cereal and a slice of toast in the morning. It's usually Frosties and white bread. Because there's very little fiber in there, glucose, which gives you energy, will be released very, very rapidly. So your blood sugar goes really high, really quickly, which is great for about 20 minutes. And then it crashes down. And when it crashes down, you get brain fog. When that happens, you sit at your desk and you struggle to think. This is where you have very, very low energy and you constantly feel like you need a pick-me-up. That is the blood sugar crashing. If you're eating those simple carbs all the time, the, the breads, the refined sugars, the cookies, then you are on that hormonal roller coaster. And if you're consuming those foods with caffeine, the effect on your blood sugar is exaggerated. Dale Pinnock says if you had a croissant on its own, your blood sugar will obviously spike. But if you had it with a coffee, it would spike even higher, and then you would get a much more aggressive crash. Now, if we're doing this spike and crash cycle throughout the day, that leaves our body so depleted that we cannot focus well for long stretches. And the typical American diet is causing these spike then crash waves all the time. Roller coasters can be pretty fun when you're at Six Flags, but this is a roller coaster you do not want to be on. It will make you ineffective even now on your job and your day-to-day -day work. And even worse, it will burn out your body over time. It really has devastating effects. To get off that roller coaster, you have to reduce the foods that cause those blood sugar spikes to much more manageable levels and then balance those out with other macronutrients, the proteins and the fats, and get those in the right proportions. Now, a second way that food is harming our focus is that it's depriving us of nutrients we need for our brains to develop and function fully. The brain is built from foods, and it needs fresh, healthy foods. When you eat what God made us to eat, then your brain functions better. Omega-3 essential fats, for example, these are terrific for brain health. And if you don't have those omega-3s in your diet, your brain is going to suffer. A third way that our food harms our focus is that our diets actively contain chemicals that seem to act on our brains almost like drugs. Back in 2009, a team of Dutch scientists took 27 children who had trouble focusing and put half of them on a diet that eliminated preservatives, additives, and synthetic dyes. So these, these young people ate fresh foods while the rest of the group stayed on a typical Western diet. 
What's fascinating is that more than 70% of the kids who cut out that processed junk improved their ability to pay attention. And the average improvement was a remarkable 50%. So you have a lot of kids today that are struggling with ADHD and symptoms like that. And so often they find that if those kids go to a whole food diet, then those attentional problems largely go away. Uh, It makes sense if you think about it. Our body is a marvelous machine. Uh, You wouldn't put Diet Coke into your gas tank. Your gas tank in your car needs a certain kind of fuel. Now, the fuel that we put into our bodies is just as important if we want it to work properly. But we are eating food built by a, a modern food production industry that doesn't think of that at all. They're just trying to sell products. They're focusing on what tastes good, no matter what it does to our health. We have to pull away from those negative cycles. And next week in this segment, we'll talk about a couple of simple rules that will help ensure that the food that we're eating is supplying our body the nutrition that we need that you're fueling that marvelous machine in a way that will help you to prosper and be in health and to function at your peak as God intends. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our contributors, Andrew Miller, Josue Michels, and Abraham Blondeau. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Randolph Bourne. A man with few friends is only half developed. There are whole sides of his nature which are locked up and have never been expressed. He cannot unlock them himself. He cannot even discover them. Friends alone can stimulate him and open them. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. Listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.